VC and private equity people are there so they know, okay, are they actually funneling money to the things that are actually transforming things or are they just kind of jumping on a hot idea and hoping that it catches on? So just refining that whole process of, of development and traction into companies that are actually profitable and meaningful for the industry. Hi, and welcome to Profiles. I'm Brian Glick, Chain.io's founder and CEO. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Eric Johnson. Eric is the senior editor for technology for the Journal of Commerce. I hope most of you have heard of him as he's one of the shining stars of the thought processes and discussions around technology in our industry. Uh, and this is a pretty special episode. Uh, he and I had planned to get through a whole list of questions and we really never got past the first one on our list. So I'm sure this will be the first in a series and we hope that you enjoy it. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks, Brian. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we start with uh, at the beginning? How did you get into supply chain and logistics? Like everyone else, uh, when I was a young boy, I dreamed of being in, uh, in logistics. Me too. No firefighting for me, no uh, astronauting for me. It was all about logistics. No, obviously, that's not how it happened. I worked at a newspaper in Southern California for about four years. Um, decided that I really, on the few occasions that I was writing about business, that I really liked business, uh, reporting about business. I had absolutely zero kind of like fundamental understanding of how business worked. I didn't, I, I didn't study it at all in, in college or had no interest in, it in high school. Um, and so went back, got a graduate degree in, in uh, business came back and got a job at another newspaper in Southern California that was actually in Long Beach. And the opening on the business desk at the time was to cover the ports of LA and Long Beach. Um, and it was, you know, basically from the perspective of um, understanding how big a, an economic engine those two ports were for the local um, uh, economy and the broader kind of Southern California area. Um, so it was definitely through that kind of lens that I was looking at it. But, you know, I, you, you, you're you in and around the ports enough. You talk to people in Dreyage. You talk to people at the at the container lines, forwarders, the cargo owners. Before you know it, you're kind of like indoctrinated into the industry. And then, um, yeah, I got a call about two years later um, from a trade publication asking if I wanted to kind of you know, go really deep into the subject. And, and yeah, it was, it was a great opportunity. So totally backed into it. And I think like with a lot of people, it just kind of tickled some bone that, um, you, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get rid of the kind of zest that you have for this industry. Once you, once you're sort of in it and, and around it. Dig a little, a little bit deeper there. What is it, you know, for somebody who doesn't operate, Right, shipments on a daily basis. What is it about the industry that you find so interesting? Well, first of all, I mean, that's a good question, but I, I'll, I'll also clarify. I've actually, aside from moving some household goods um, around the world a couple of times, I've actually never moved any freight myself. So I don't have any operational experience in it. Um, I just, you know, I talk to dozens of people every week who are involved in that. So, but to your point about what's interesting about it, well, I think... First of all, when the light bulb goes off that like everything around us, there's some movement that's related to it. It doesn't just magically appear on shelves. I think that's kind of an interesting 
awake, moment of awakening. It's kind of like that scene in Fight Club when uh, Edward Norton is looking around his apartment and all the prices and the descriptions from the Ikea catalog just like super on it. It's kind of like that, but you're like, oh, it costs that much and it moved on Maris. Um, I, you know, for me, I think just the international aspect of the business is also really fascinating. You know, you get to go see some really interesting places around the world, depending on what your role is. Um, you, uh, you get to learn about different ways that business is done and how culture kind of intersects with that in different countries and, and even different parts of, you know, big countries or, or, you know, trading blocks like the European Union, just how, how different things are from place to place. And then you sort of start to understand why the industry has evolved the way it has and why it looks really fragmented from a, a really high level. But actually it's because despite how common a lot of things are around the world, you know, there's just huge variances in each each place that you go and how freight has moved in, in those places. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the inner relatedness of it to everything that we do in our daily lives and then just sort of the international mystique of dealing with, with, with commerce in different countries is, are probably the two things that I find most interesting. So you mentioned now that you've been in the industry, seeing how all that variance exists, you know, different modes, different geographies, all that. Uh, one of the conversations I've had on this show before with other people is, you know, the the question when it comes to technology and disruption of, is this an industry that has to be disrupted from within? Uh, because people who come from the outside, they oversimplify because they don't understand that. Or is there space for people to sort of come from outside the industry and sort of wash away or, or absorb that complexity and still be a, you know, a meaningful force? Uh, I, you know, I think as with everything, like extremes on either side are probably not ideal. I think a, a good blend of kind of taking industry knowledge, but also fresh perspectives from the outside is probably the best recipe. Really, it's it's kind of the execution of any of these ideas more than anything else. I mean, I, for me, I think about, you know, because my job obviously is writing about technology and helping people understand what's interesting out there, what's actually got traction, what's you know, real in their day to day and what will be real in the coming years. And so I have to kind of um, be excited about things, but also keep my feet on the ground about things. And um, I think the, the tech, the people who come in without any industry experience probably initially think it's an easier problem to solve than it actually is. And they get lured by the size of the market without realizing that the market is so big because they're inherent variances that are hard to scale across. Um, the people who are in the industry are necessary because they have kind of that tactical exposure to what the real problems are, but they also sometimes struggle to think beyond what, what they've done. Um, and, you know, even their kind of like solutions to things are based on, uh, you know, their experiences or, you know, some kind of tweaking of their experiences. It's sort of like, I, I'm going to throw another weird analogy at you, but, you know, like every single science fiction movie, every alien in a science fiction movie, for the most part, sort of resembles like a, ma a mammalian form. It's got like two eyes and two ears and a mouth and legs and arms and stuff. And so it's like, because it's hard for us to picture what what a being that doesn't look like something like us is 
Um, I think that's the problem that people who are in the industry, for, you know, who are trying to even change things technologically, it's hard to get out of your own head in terms of experience. So I think a blend is probably the best solution. I personally think, you know, I write about technology, but I don't have any sort of technology training or background. Um, I personally think that part is a lot harder to come by than the industry knowledge. The industry knowledge is not rocket science. It's just repetitions, I think. It's you, over, over time, you accumulate a lot of experience doing things and you understand better how everything fits together. You don't need sort of a mathematical brain or a scientific brain to figure that stuff out. You just, you just kind of do it enough times to figure it out. The programmatic coding algorithmic side of things is it's that's way harder for people to learn i mean i think people could go to school for that for five years and not really understand it it's interesting i actually disagree with you a little bit okay uh, as someone who sort of does a little of both um or a lot of both on a given the day um you know i've been doing technology in one way or another for got 32 years i've been doing logistics for 20 right okay i feel like I know more of the technology domain as a, like if you said, this is the whole domain of technology, right? Everything from, you know, how a transistor works up to like artificial intelligence and, you know, why, why Tesla's, the window broke on the Tesla the other day and everything in between. Um, I know more about that. I feel like from a coverage standpoint than I do about our industry that I've been in for 20 years. That's how vast, like every day I hear about some little niche of the industry that I just, you know, it never even occurred to me existed. Like the software providers who focus exclusively on rating drainage moves, mm, right? Yeah. Like they, that's a whole person's life for 20 years, right? It's just rating algorithms for drainage moves in and out of the ports, right? And it's just, it's so massive. So, yeah. Okay. That's a great point. And I don't disagree with you. I mean, it's, as long as I've been doing this uh, and I get to talk to, I'm lucky I get to talk to a wide range of people, probably wider than a lot of people who are, you know, involved in some sort of operational aspect of the industry do. Um, but even then I still will have a conversation where someone will bring something up to me that I've literally never heard before. So you're right there. Are, I guess it's maybe more accurate to say there are sort of innumerable amount of dynamics to account for. Um, that are, it's almost impossible to know them all. I think the harder part for me to understand is how you get to the point where you become uh, someone who is excellent at building a machine learning, you know, model. That, 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 from point A to point Z of that experience seems infinitely harder than understanding how, you know, to put together a bill of lading. Right. So I do agree with you. I agree that the individual things are absolutely harder on the tech side. Yeah. Right. But the, and then the breadth might actually be harder um, on the on the other on the uh, logistics side, right. almost because you can like, you know, if you're logically compose it, you can take a tech stack really from the electrical, like from this is how electricity gets made, and it's like just building layer on layer on the way up. Whereas logistics is like, especially once you start getting into compliance and trade finance and things that are not the physical movement, 
it's just like you don't even know what to ask, right? Like it's just, yeah. you know, like try, try explaining Inco terms to somebody who's never done, who never moved to shipment, right? Yeah. It's like you have to start with the concept of finance and work your way from there. Right. Good point. The amount of uh, like industrial knowledge you need to know is, is really amazingly wide and deep. It's, that's for sure. So with all this stuff going on, Tina, what, where, what are you excited about? What's, what's out there that, you know, amongst all this noise that you're particularly, particularly up on right now? I think it's probably natural for someone in my position to go through these cycles of being really hyped up about some, some concept or, um, you know, it's rare that it's a certain company necessarily that excites me. It's more about like a concept or a, a trend or a category of software. And then it's sort of like, I forget what Gardner calls it, the trough of disillusionment. For me, it's like the cynical back of that mountain when I realize it's not really going anywhere or it's not as exciting as I initially thought it might be. So it's, I think those kind of peaks and valleys are pretty natural for someone who's being confronted with people that are hyping up a lot of different things all the time. Um, so I guess, I guess my latest kind of area of fancy from a, is this going to transform the business, uh, down the road is, is, is like process automation or RPA. Um, I think that seems like something to me that is more easily understandable for the lay person, uh, is, you know, more digestible from an investment perspective. And so might actually get a little bit more traction than some of the things that are a little harder for people to get their heads around. Um, in terms of like processes, I think, you know, the thing I've probably written about the most over the last year to year and a half is dynamic quoting and, um, and just the general kind of migration of, of like that customer, uh, stellar interface from what it's been to a more online environment. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be like an Expedia-like experience, but just creating some structure around that that's that's electronic and can be captured and, and put alongside all the other transactions, I think is, is probably the more exciting part than just saying, just being able to get a rate instantly that is you know, $3 cheaper than you were getting on the phone. That I think is probably the thing that is most interesting to me from a, is this really going to catch on and change really fundamental part of the business? And then RPA is probably kind of like the, the concept that I'm most interested in exploring in the months ahead. Slight interjection here. And then I, I do want to get back to that quoting topic. But I just have to tell you that yesterday, uh, and this is 100% a true story, I got an email from my mother who's retired and living in Florida. And there was something about blockchain. And she said, you know, aren't you involved in this? And this article says nothing in blockchain is ever going to work. And I actually had to call my mother and explain the Gartner hype cycle. And the trough of disillusionment yesterday on my walk home from work to my mother, uh, because it's that real that that it even it even gets to retiree communities in Florida. Well, it's it's awesome that she's still worried about whether you're going to do well too, based on an article. Back to the uh, the quoting and the RPA, like where do you think those are in their life cycle? Like you know, I think RPA is probably a little earlier, but you know, is quoting mature? Is it really early? Like where do you see it? I don't know. I think we're past really early. I still think we're very early. Um, like, well, I don't know what the difference between very and really is. We're somewhat early. Um, 
And it's more, I think there's a couple components as I understand it. Um, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts too, but I think the biggest hurdle right now is, is sort of cultural and it's not even necessarily like the famous cultural, like, Oh, people are resistant to change. I think a lot of it is, uh, the, the cultural reticence to go to, you know, kind of like this environment where you're just, you know, buying capacity on a, on a dynamic basis, all ad hoc, you're, you're paying the market rate, whatever it is, kind of goes against the, the theory that shippers, especially big shippers, want some certainty. And it's really not about like a few dollars here and there, but it's about, you know, thinking about ocean freight specifically um, as like a constant cost so that they can build, you know, a, a landed cost model and make sure that goods are on shelves or goods are not being held or not holding up a, a, a production line because that's a bigger issue than just a few extra dollars on the, on the freight rates. So I think there's some, there's some fundamental things that are going to keep like a dynamic quoting environment from ever capturing, you know, a, even 50% of the of, of freight buying out there. Um, I think there's some other cultural stuff that can be gotten around. Like, you know, can you represent someone's leverage um, if they're moving 100,000 TEUs, can you ad- can you adequately represent that leverage in a purely kind of like digital environment? Um, it's hard, I think, for people to think about that now, but I, I think it's possible. You know, I think it's like you can be a big volume kind of customer and still have that represented in an electronic way. Um, so I think that will eventually get overcome. On the on the um, you know the sort of supply side, I. I sort of have been told, and, and it's clearly not every single, every carrier is kind of in a different position and every freight forwarder who's offering, you know, dynamic rates is in a different position than others. They're all not, this is not a monolithic situation, but um, I've been told that carriers have a really, still have a really tough time adequately understanding what their available capacity is at any given time. So if you don't know your available inventory, how can you price that remaining inventory um, effectively on a sort of like a, a time uh, scale as as the clock tick tap clicks down clicks down ticks down sorry until the sailing goes right so you have this you know diminishing uh, or perishable asset that is diminishing in value the closer it gets to the the time that the sailing goes so how do you kind of balance available capacity against that that time um, aspect and and so I don't know I, I've been told even carriers that are are providing dynamic quotes and there's only like four or five of them right now that are um, are it's, there's a lot of guesswork that goes into those quotes and it's really about conditioning people to buy in that way more than it is like representative of the actual dynamic cost that they'd want to charge to a shipper for that space so you know there's some fundamental things on both sides I think that are um, they're keeping us a long way from it being like this pervasive way of buying uh, freight. So I, I think you actually brought up a couple of really interesting things there. Uh, probably one of the things I heard in there kind of woven in was the difference between dynamic quoting and that, or, I'm sorry, dynamic pricing and automated quoting, right? And I think we're at this point, just the companies that can get to automated quoting, right? I can hit an API or go to a website and get a price. 
is is impressive right today and then people are jumping to let me dynamically calculate that price and change the 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 dimensions and the shape of the market there are two things that sort of are being interchanged in conversations and are foundationally different right i I know a lot of shippers and a lot of forwarders and almost everyone in the transaction who would be extremely happy just to get to the first piece right just just can i can i get a quote i have a you know i have a container sitting here and i need a price to get it to there and i don't want to wait two days right like that's a big step in and of itself no i i don't disagree and i mean it, it that sort of goes part and parcel with what we were talking about before about like the volume of knowledge you need there's lots of things that get conflated you know forwarders nvos the, the various lsp quote unquote lsp business models all get kind of lumped into one basket when actually there's obviously a lot of nuance between those models and so yeah this is another example it, and it's even it's even more prevalent i would say in in where when you get into technology, because there's even less known about that. So yeah, I, you know, I fall into those habits too of kind of like interchangeably using terms that are not actually do not actually mean the same thing. One of the great places to unpack all those terms is uh, is is the event that you started up the the logistics technology show in in Las Vegas. Uh, can you tell everybody who maybe hasn't been a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so we started this event uh, last fall, so the fall of 2018. And, and as you said, we just had our second version, our second iteration of it in uh, in September of this year. It's uh, We've shortened the name to hopefully make it a little snappier, LogTech now. Um, it is essentially the place where we're hoping that dialogue around all of this stuff that's really difficult for especially for shippers but you know even 3pls and other parties in the industry that know that technology is something they need to both understand better and invest in we want this to be the place where they get a little bit sharper understanding of where they need to kind of focus that um, research and investment into so um, you know whether that's a certain category of software whether it's a certain type of product that's enabled by technology and also help them understand where, you know, there's some things that they may be hearing a ton about, um, but that just don't have a lot of traction yet or aren't ready for prime time. And, and, you know, you can kind of lay back and, and not focus too much time on that for the time being Be mindful of it, but really focus on things that are, um, you know, more important to you. So, you know, that's, that's an event that sort of fits in with our larger basket of events where we drill a lot more deeply into kind of like the nitty gritty of, of software than we ever would at any other event. One of the sessions I, I found really interesting this year um, was one where it really ended up being kind of like free, not free, because right, people had to pay to attend, but it ended up being advice for, for you know, startups and, and companies that were sort of transitioning to different models about how you effectively target um, buyers in the logistics industry. And that's not something I think that you get at a lot of different events. So hopefully there's appeal to not just the buyers and users of software, but also the people developing software. And, and ultimately, I, that's my big hope is that this becomes like an ecosystem where there's like this kind of feedback loop where people are on site informing the developers of tools about what's important and they're you know they're getting that feedback and they're going and developing and honing their approach 
And then that creates better products for those, you know, those potential users to actually use. And, you know, the VC and private equity people are there. So they know, okay, are they actually funneling money to the things that are actually transforming things? Or are they just kind of jumping on a hot idea and hoping that it catches on? So just refining that whole process of, of development and traction into companies that are actually profitable and meaningful for the industry. I go to a lot of events all year, probably 10 or so over the course of the year. And it's the only one that I attend the, sh- the sessions in. So hopefully hopefully anyone who's listening from those other events isn't offended. But you know, I take a lot of meetings at the other ones. But usually when I go to the sessions, I'm just listening to somebody sell something. And you really do get sort of that healthy conflict on on the stages and, and sort of the you know, people telling it like it is, which is, uh, which is certainly different than a lot of the other things that are, uh, more pay to play out there. Yeah. Well, thank you. I put a lot of work into making sure that the topics are interesting to me and that, that they're based on like on, you know, substance rather than, um, you know, sales pitches. I think there's a time and place for people to talk about what they do, but for the most part, I think most people are, are, are more interested in understanding the core thing that they need to know rather than who is providing and they can figure that out on their own, but they need, they sort of need like the rudimentary kind of building blocks. And then maybe, yeah, I think the the interesting thing about that event is you can go to sessions that are relatively basic. And then there's some sessions where we get a little bit deeper into specific product areas. And that's where you can really kind of like see how tech is, is transforming things. So, um, but yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. That's it. Uh, it's a lot of fun to put together. It's a ton of fun to, to you know, when I'm on site and we're you know having all these cool discussions with what I consider to be like the who's who of of like of transformational tech people in the industry. So you have uh, you have something else coming up, uh, first time thing coming up here in the spring. You want to talk about that a little? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we're we've sort of taken that idea of. Um, what we do at LogTech, which is in the fall in Las Vegas. And we're trying to bring a little bit of the element of that into TPM, which is, I think, by any measurable standard, the biggest uh, container shipping event in the world. Um, that's in Long Beach in March. And that it'll be actually the 20th anniversary of the event this year. So it's going to be pretty momentous. Um, so we, we're actually, we've created a, a new... Um, set of programming and there's going to be a new physical space that we've an area of the convention center in Long Beach that we've never used before um, that we're, we're starting this kind of tech environment called El Dorado um, and if anyone's curious as to why we're calling it El Dorado it's because this is sort of the mythical city. if you do a Google search of El Dorado it's sort of this quixotic place where rumored to be a, sort of like a city of gold and so I think a lot of people sort of view technology as this, as this uh, place that's forever out of their grasp. Um, so hopefully we will bring people a little bit closer to the actual El Dorado and, and make it a little less ethereal for them. But um, but it's really cool. We're, I'm really excited about this. The the panels are going to be a little bit more quick hitting and, and a little bit smaller, more more conversational. It's going to be a little different vibe than than the main programming at TPM. Uh, so to give people a little bit of option if they want to immerse themselves into into some tech concepts and hear from some really big industry experts and, and uh, leaders um, around how what they're doing tech wise. And you and I actually have a conversation uh, um, on, on the program as well. So 
Wouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't build a program without you on it, Brian. Well, I'm honored. Hopefully I'll be able to live up to that. Uh, I do want to loop back to something you just said, though, that I think is a really interesting concept to dig into, which is if technology is always this thing up on the hill, right, and you can never reach it, um, is is that, do you still, in, in your conversations with people who are looking to buy technology or looking to, to, to change their businesses, do they still see it as a, a destination to reach? Like I have to get there or is it becoming more of just, this is part of the journey and it's just inside the business now? You know, that's a great, really great question. Um, I think people would like to think that technology is now sort of an ongoing part of their business that needs to be addressed on a, you know, in a, in a more uh, systematic or kind of, ongoing basis. Um, I'm not really convinced that most businesses actually treat it that way. I think they're still, it's still very much like a, and I, I'd be interested to hear your take since you're actually dealing with a lot of this stuff, but I still think it's a very milestone driven initiative uh, for the most part is, is investing in tech. It's like you have, depending on the size of your business, right? It's build a business case go out and research the potential people you might work with, um, narrow it down, uh, maybe do a, a trial or some sort of proof, or, you know, you have some sort of probationary period. Uh, there's a, there's an ROI attached or there's some metric that's attached. You achieve that metric. And if it's, if it's wildly successful, maybe you look to that partner to say, Hey, let's build something bigger and do some other stuff and make this, you know, make you part of our a bigger part of our success story. If it's, you know, mildly successful and you achieve the metrics, but not, you don't know, like vastly succeed, exceed them. Um, it, I feel like it becomes kind of a one and done thing until the next time you, you sort of get the budget or, or feel a, a, a need to do something. And I, I mean, I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts on this, but I think part, it's part of it is just human nature. It's sort of like, it's, it's hard to do these things, no matter how easy software is to implement these days. It's hard to go through this whole cycle. You go through it, you've gotten some benefit out of it. You can show that benefit. And then it's like, move on to the next thing. It's like that problem has been solved. So then you don't really see the, the you know, the trouble ahead through the, through the trees because you've kind of gotten to this point. From my experience working with companies who, you know, across multiple implementations of different software and, you know, being an integration partner, you sort of see a lot of the different things. Um, you know, the, the first thing is everyone's sort of a mess from the inside, right? There's, there's no company, you know, and my, my own company included that if all of our customers were in our office all day, every day, there'd be things that we'd be embarrassed about, right? The, the way we do X, Y, or Z is a little more manual or, or whatever the case may be, right? And, you know, forwarders certainly, uh, and and shippers, the illusion of safety and organization is nice, but there, there's a little bit of chaos in there. And and I think with tech, there's this sort of you read an article about another a competitor doing this cool thing, and you think they have it all sorted out. And what you don't know is that behind that cool thing, they hired sixty people. Uh, halfway around the world to sit there and dual key between four legacy systems so that they could give the illusion that that web portal is working. 
properly. Right. And so when I think people create a lot of stress on themselves in the business saying we have to be as good as company X when company X isn't even actually as good as company X. Right. And so there's sort of this, you know, like, oh, we're never we're never getting there. Right. We're on this treadmill. And there's always and if you look at all the companies in the industry, there's always somebody doing something new. Right. And, you know, without getting a little uh, too um, hippie ish about this, you know, you got to you got to learn to to sort of appreciate yourself and, and what your strengths are, uh, be a little less comparative to everyone else. Um, you know, I think that's part of it. And then but as far as the buying process, it is an event driven thing. Right. So you do have to make a purchase order. You do have to sort of operate in the world of money, which means there is a moment when money transfers hands and um you know, I think what companies could probably serve to get a little better at uh, outside of the technical side of integrating a new package in is sort of appreciating that you will always be buying something. So don't make get good at it. Right. Don't make it this one time event. And then the next time you go to buy this offer to solve this other problem over here you know, kind of feeling like you either you haven't done it before or it's a whole new thing, right? There's there's more consistency in that process than I think a lot of, especially smaller companies appreciate, right? Even small to mid, right? Very large companies have procurement departments and people to support that. But uh, I think up to $50 million companies even, you see where that process is just chaos. And if they could get better at that, then the rest of it gets easier down the road. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think it's. Uh, I do think there is a sense that, like, you can't. I, I would imagine things have changed a lot since you know. Say that I'm just throwing a random number since the early '90s, where it was, you know, you're going to buy this piece of software and it's going to be your software for 20 years, and your te- your internal team is just going to upgrade this. And you know, it, I think one thing our kind of like app based lives have taught us is that. There's always something else around the corner. So I think that people are more mindful of, of kind of eyeing what's on the horizon. But you, can't, you can get really, to your point, you can get really distracted if you're just constantly thinking that you are underperforming or underinvesting. Um, when in reality, most people aren't even fully using the systems they've already invested in. So Yeah, and there's, there's also sort of an impression that getting rid of things is bad. Right. And, and what I mean by that is, look, sometimes you buy software and, and with SaaS and with hosted software, this is plausible. It was a lot harder to do this when you had to build out servers and infrastructure and say, I need this software for the next two years. Right. I have a, a, a there's a, a situation in my business or a thing we want to do. And in two years, we're not going to need that software anymore. And that's OK. Right. That not everything has to be a 10 year purchase. Right. And I'm sure all of my customers who are software providers are very upset with me right now for saying that. But but it is realistic, right, that some of these things don't have to be that dramatic. You can make a shorter buying decision knowing you're making a smaller commitment. Right. And that not everything's the same scale. And maybe what I need right now is a, you know, invoice an automation uh, process just for the back office so that I can so that I can quote faster. And because I know in two years, I'm going to feel like the market for dynamic quoting is, is mature and I'm going to want to throw that other thing away. Right. And that, that's not a bad, you know, it's a continuum and it's, it's sort of, you're in this stream of, 
of technology evolution and seeing it more as a continuum than a series of distinct events is, uh, can be helpful. One last thing on this, and because you brought up backend, I, that's another interesting kind of dividing line is I think it's probably instructive to think, you know, whether you're a LSP or a, a shipper um, or even a container line now, I mean, it seems like container lines are more open, more open than ever to kind of experimenting with outside technology, at least more than they ever were before. But you need to have separate strategies for how you invest systematically in your kind of operational software versus how you present yourself to customers. And I think the the customer presentation piece is the, there's more providers in that space now than ever before. And I think there will be more providers in that space. And I think that's the, and tell me if I'm wrong on this from your perspective, but I think that's, again, a little bit of the easier piece to architect than the operational side of things. So, you know, you need to make a decision. What's your, what are you really good at internally? What are you not so good at? Um, what in the market is kind of plentiful and in, in terms of numbers of solutions and prevalent and what's, where is investment going to third party solutions and where is investment not going and, and, and strategize around that, you know, so that you're not thinking I need to, I need to be upgrading my, you know, user interface or, or quoting engine every six months or every two years or what have you, when really you don't need to be thinking as hard about that as you do about your ability to generate a quote that's effective for you. I definitely agree that they're distinct things and that the front end is always sexier, right? So if you're in new technology, you tend to hear about a lot of the front end stuff. But at the end of the day, the, the back end stuff has just massive potential, right? To make your business you know, if you can operate more efficiently and provide a higher level of customer service and you don't have quite as pretty a website, you're going to be okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, like I agree. I, ve I very much agree with that. I also I also think that I did a blog post on this uh, that, that we'll put in the show notes um, that there isn't necessarily a world where every company is going to end up with one front-end solution, right? That you have different customers with different profiles, right? And some of them need a very robust PO management-based visibility tool, and some of them need a portal to book a container, right? And those are not, those customers have very, very different demands and, and you know, to try to service them with the same tool, you know, it was sort of the only option we had way back, uh, but I think we're getting to the point where maybe, you know, a company says, I have a, suite of products that are all web-based or app-based and are appropriate to different segments of my community. Um, it makes it much harder on the sales team and you have to educate your sales team a lot better so that they're presenting the right solution to the right customer profile. But, uh, but I do think this idea of sort of one system to rule them all is uh, a little bit of a fool's errand on the front end. Yeah. I agree. I, that this gets back to the dispersed nature of uh, of the industry. What makes it interesting is also what makes it hard, right? So, 
So that's probably a good place for us to wrap up. Uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back because I don't think we got through half of what we intended to talk about. But uh, but yeah, really appreciate you you coming on the show, and, and we're definitely going to maybe we'll maybe we'll pick up another one uh, after El Dorado in the spring, and, and maybe do a little bit of a recap of, of the stuff that came out of that. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to do that. And thanks for having me on, Brian. This has been great. Always good to chat with you. Awesome. Well, uh, we'll talk to you again soon, and uh, and thanks to everyone else for listening.